Uh, we're going to be looking at a passage that is just like enormous in its importance and it's enormous and how in a lot of ways crazy it is and how different than anything else in any other religion and um, it's one of those that I don't know we could probably spend a whole semester just thinking about this passage um, we've been, as I think you all know, we've been going through the book of Exodus this semester. And um, the book of Exodus is about God saving his people. And the way he goes about doing that is that well, they're enslaved in Egypt for a very long time. And God uh, miraculously is going to bring them out. And up to this point, it has not been super great. And uh, There's not been a lot of progress, uh, but uh, God has promised that he's going to bring his people out. He's going to save them. He's going to bring them to a good land and that he's going to use them to save the world. And so so what we looked at last week was uh, the plagues. If you were here, we looked at the plagues on Egypt and we looked at uh, how God brought judgment on the land of Egypt. Um... And yet Pharaoh still did not respond and let God's people go. And so what we come to tonight is really, it's the 10th it's the plague. Uh, we know it as the Passover. Uh, so it's a big deal in both Judaism and Christianity. And um, I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll spend some time unpacking it. So this is Exodus 12, a couple different portions. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt." both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then skipping to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Uh, Let me pray again for us. Father, we need you to make sense of your word to us. We need you to apply it to our hearts. Uh, We need uh, you to be at work among us tonight. Uh, We pray that you would do just that. We're all coming from different weeks where a lot's been going on or different things have been going on that are stressful or some of us feel uh, just kind of lost and some of us feel stressed and some of us feel like uh, you are, don't seem really to be there and we're all kind of in those places and everywhere in between and we pray that you'd meet us now in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the background of this passage is that God's people have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And the thing about that is that the play, like God has promised to rescue his people, and God's already done some great and amazing things, but they don't really seem to be working. So the mood, I want you to imagine what it would be like to be among this people that's in slavery and has this big promise and some kind of big things are happening, but not really though, because nothing is working. God, they're stuck there. Um, And so um, maybe you've felt a similar sentiment at some point in your life where you come to a point where you're like, everything I'm doing seems to not be working. And I'm just tired of everything not working out, and I'm kind of just done. Nothing is going right for me. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. Uh, if you have, and I certainly have, and I'm sure you have at some point too, uh, there could be different reasons why we feel that way. You know, some, we might be able to stop and say, like, well, yeah, I have been kind of pushing God aside, and a lot of stuff has kind of been working out poorly, but... You know, some of us might feel like, you know, I've actually been trying to do what God wants and live the way he wants, and that doesn't seem to be enough either. Um, When you feel like everything you've tried has failed, and you've already, you're kind of like ready to throw in the towel, if you will, the question is, what do you need to make it through? What do you need to hear about? And in this story, what do God's people need to hear about And what they need to hear about is the God who saves. Uh, So we're going to focus on the God who saves tonight. And we're going to look at three elements of the story that are important. The first is the firstborn. And the second is the blood. And the third is the lamb. And I hope you guys were unsettled a little bit when we read this passage. Like, this is a tough one. There's a lot of people that die in this passage. And so uh, I hope that was unsettling for you. Um, It certainly is for me. And as I read it throughout the week, I was just kind of like, oh no, this is hard. Uh, But bear with me as we kind of uh, 
look at this in depth a little bit. And you know, if you have questions about it beyond what I address, like please feel free to ask. I'd love to talk more about it. Um, but first of all, I want to look at the idea of the firstborn. Um, we live in a pretty individualistic society, but for people who lived back in this time, the firstborn, if you're in a family, the firstborn is everything. Like, when you thought about yourself back then, you actually thought about, like, all the ancestors that would come after you forever. Like, you would just lump your whole family and all its generations together. So the firstborn in your family was a really big deal, like the biggest deal. And the firstborn was entitled to, like, all of the inheritance. Like, the other kids, not worth so much. The firstborn was everything in this society. All the hope for the future of your family rested on the firstborn. It would be kind of like, I don't know, what would be the equivalent today? Like your bank account or your college, you know, what do you bank your future on? Your savings, your college transcript, um, the fact that you own a car or a house. So uh, when we talk about striking down the firstborn child, that's kind of akin to like if someone came today and wiped out all your accounts and erased your Yukon transcript. We're talking about all hope of the future uh, being at stake in this firstborn uh, child. And what God's do, the reason the firstborn is a big deal in our passage is that God is saying to Israel and to everyone in the world that he has a right to everything in your life just based on the fact that he is God and he made you. And you might listen to that, hear me say that, and be like, you know, I don't really like that idea. And I'm sure you have friends that do not really like that idea. And at first glance, no one likes that idea. Um, But what I need you to see is that if you don't have a God like that, who is entitled to everything, then you don't really have a God. Uh, You just have, you know... A God that's not really God. A God that uh, bends to your wishes. And so if you don't have that, then essentially you're your own God. Um, I read a poem recently called Three Dollars Worth of God. And I'm going to read you a couple lines from it. See if you can identify. The poet says, I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. You can probably relate to that, right? I certainly can. Um, But if God is who he says he is in the Bible, then you can't have just $3 worth of God. That does not work. Uh, There's a reason in the Bible when people come into contact with God that they just fall on their faces afraid. Um, There's a reason that they want to run away when they encounter the holiness of God. Um, What does that mean for us? What it means for us here at UConn is that if God is this way, you can't kind of compartmentalize God into one section of your life. Um, and you, have you guys heard the term friend zone? Do people still say that? Like, uh, if, you're, if you like someone, but they, don't, they kind of are happy to make, keep you as their friend, but 
they don't want to date you. It's called being put in the friend zone. Is that still a thing? It was, okay, well, it was at some point. And you would say, like, I just got friend zoned by, like, whoever it is that you like. Um, what this is saying about us and God is that we like to keep God in the friend zone, if you will. Um, you know, we like to have comfort when life is hard. You know, that's what it's like. I, I was friend zone bad in college. And so what that looked like is like, you know, you're always around when someone needs help or when they want to talk, but you don't get to actually like be part of their life in the way you want to. And what this is saying is that our tendency is to friend zone God um, and to have him around for when we need him and life is really hard. But then he kind of has no say in how I spend my time. He kind of has no say in who I date. And he kind of has no say in what career I choose. He's just kind of uh, there if I need him. And what this is saying is that God, there's no way that God can be that for you. He won't be that. Um, God is either your everything or he's not really anything to you. Um, so that's what's kind of behind the firstborn. And now I want to take a moment and look at the idea of blood. Um, if you were here last week, we talked about the plagues and God's judgment. And we talked about how uh, a lot of the time God's judgment in our life looks kind of natural. And it works itself out in ways that seem kind of natural. And how God, what God doesn't do to us is say like, you know, you cheated on an exam this week. I'm going to have you slip on ice next week as payment. Like God doesn't judge us that way. Because uh, there's a judgment day. God has set a judgment day. There was a day when we will all meet God and face judgment. And so because that judgment day is out there, God doesn't feel the need to like whack us every time we sin, every time we run from him. And he doesn't typically do that. But what this is showing us is that sometimes in the Bible, in very special cases, like when God's people are enslaved for 400 years and they will not be set free, sometimes that final judgment that's way out here, that's awaiting all of us, breaks into history now. And we can see that happening in our story. God's judgment is breaking in uh, at this moment for the cause of God's people. And, you know, again, we come up with the problem that God is a judge, right? And we don't like that. No, most people we know would not like, that. you know, we'd say, I don't like God being a judge. Uh, and what I would say to you, or what I would say to a friend of yours who might say something like that, is that if you don't like the idea of God being a judge, you only have one other option. And the Bible actually talks about this we talked about it in our Romans Bible study a couple weeks ago. Um, if you don't like the idea of God being a judge, then your other option is that you can live by the standard of yourself. And, you know, so imagine what that would look like. Imagine if I hung a digital recorder around your neck and it was capable of recording anything. Let's say it was capable of recording your thoughts and your words. And every time you said something like, people should it would turn on and it would catch whatever you said afterwards. And every time you said, I can't believe they did fill in the blank, it would turn on. And so it's recording all your thoughts and everything you say that's saying, people should do this. I don't get why people are this way. I don't get 
how someone could have done that. And now imagine at the end of your life that recorder being played back and measured up against what you actually did. You cannot like the idea that God is a judge because you will fail in his judgment, but you will also fail in your own judgment. You will fail no matter what. Uh, Whether you're trying to live up to God's standards or your own standards, the standards you set for other people and yourself, you will not be able to live up to those. And in our passage, what we see is that there's a necessity of payment for not living up to God's standards. In our passage, God calls in the debt. He demands payment. And, you know, another problem for us modern Americans, right? Why do we need to pay? Why, you know, what, like blood and animals? What are you talking about? Why can't God just forgive? I've talked about this in RUF before. Um, The idea that we all actually do know that all wrongs have to be righted. Uh, When someone wrongs you, you typically say something or think something like, they need to pay for this. We say that all the time. Uh, Imagine, you know, on a personal level, like if I went around spreading rumors about you on campus at UConn, and I said, you know, Danny over here has been up to some uh, all kinds of stuff and he's a really bad person and you should never hang out with him because he's just really bad. Imagine if I spread that around to Yukon and Danny got wind of it. Um, how would, what would Danny do? What would make that right? Um, you know, what if at the end of that I was like, hey Danny, sorry, and walked away. Like, sorry I did that. He would still have the problem that everyone at UConn thinks this about him to deal with. Like it does, me saying sorry doesn't fill in the gap of the problem that Danny has to deal with now. And so for it to be made right, either Danny's, either I'm going to have to apologize to Danny and then go tell everyone that it wasn't true and own up to it and pay, or Danny will have to pay. And what it will look like for Danny to have to pay is that everyone will hate him for a while and that will be bad for him. Or he'll have to go around and take time to explain what happened. Either way, either I'm paying or Danny's paying. And it's true socially, too. And at UConn, this is a big deal. Like, um, Remember earlier in the year, two of the hot-button issues on campus were sexual assault and racism. And what the, you know, so there, there were these incidents of sexual assault and there were these incidents of racism on campus. And everyone was kind of like, well, what is the university going to do about it? That was like the sentiment going around. And, you know, what if Susan Herbst wrote this email and was like, yeah, there were some sexual assaults, but the guys who did it are really sorry. So we're not going to do anything. Or like, you know, someone said these racist things, but they, afterwards they said they were sorry, so we're not going to do anything. There would be outraged, right? Because the sense is that if they don't pay for it, then we will all pay. Because we'll have to live in a place where there's sexual assault and racism, and we don't want to do that. Uh, again, somebody's got to pay when, something, when someone does something wrong. And so if God is really God, like we've been talking about, it shouldn't surprise us that God demands payment 
when his own people in his world that he created walk around acting like he's not there most of the time. And God should demand, a real true God should demand payment when people who he created hurt other people that he also created and also loved. These are things we've all done. This is it's a picture of us. Um, and along with that, what we need to see in this passage is that there's an equality to the judgment. What this passage isn't saying is, you know, Israel's better, so they're not going to face judgment, and Egypt is worse, so they will. I'm not saying that at all in this passage. What it's saying is, uh, every firstborn child in Egypt is going to die tonight, whether it's Israel or Egypt. And the only thing that will spare it is blood. In every house in Egypt that night, there was either a dead kid or a dead lamb. And what does that mean for us? What it means for us is that we've got to get out of this mentality of like us Christians and them bad people. We need to just like throw away the us versus them thing altogether because what... This is saying about God's judgment is that we all like are in trouble unless we have a substitute. So if I can walk around campus and know that God loves me, it can't be because I'm a better person than anyone. And it can't be because uh, I have my life together more. It can only be because I'm marked by blood in some way. And that's where we get to the lamb. So the third and final element that we're looking at, the lamb of God. Um, How does God go about saving his people? In this passage, he provides a way so that a life can be substituted for their life. And he picks a lamb. Uh, This separates God from every other God and any religion and any other idea of God. Because this God, the God of the Bible, does demand payment But he also says, I will accept a substitute for your life. And here he says that the life of a lamb without blemish can be a suitable substitute for God's people. Now, why would he choose a lamb? Have you ever thought about that? Like, why didn't he choose like a powerful bull that you would have to like wrestle to its death and then you would be fit to be one of God's people? Um... He chose a weak, little, innocent lamb. A little, cute, fluffy creature. And what, the reason God did that is he's hammering home the idea that you can't save yourself. This is not about what you can do to save yourself. Uh, he could have said, you know, the people that will be saved will be the ones that can pray ten times a day for ten days, and then you'll be saved. But then that would just be you saving yourself, Right? Uh, you would have kind of something to brag about at that point, and you'd still be prone to fall back into the way you were before. But if it's God that saves in our passage through the blood of a weak little lamb, then all you can do is fall on him and say thank you. All you can do is say thank you and begin to trust him and begin to live for him. You don't, be, you don't save yourself by taking steps toward God to make him happy with you. 
What this is saying is that the salvation of God and the life of his people here in our lives is his work from start to finish. And he can even do it with a lamb. Uh, But what you need to see in this story, which you cannot miss, you know, if we were to stop there, that would be good news about God, but we would be missing the biggest part of the story, which is that this is a story... It's an episode in a much bigger story that God is writing in the history of the world. It plays out in the Bible, and the story is ultimately about the one real unblemished lamb to come. And the ultimate, you know, not salvation from slavery in Egypt, but salvation from slavery to sin. Salvation from everything that separates us from God. And the way it plays out is that this is, you know, it talks about how this is going to be a feast every year. God's people are going to remember the day that they were brought out of Egypt. And the way they're going to remember that is that they're going to celebrate the Passover feast every single year. And God's people did that for 1,500 years or so. Every year, they would, each family would kill a lamb and they would remember that day when their ancestors were brought out of Egypt. And then one day, about 1,500 years later, Passover came around, and Jesus was there at that time. And Jesus, before he died, had a Passover feast with his disciples. It's called the Last Supper. And he, you know, the three elements to the Passover feast were bread, wine, and a lamb. And Jesus brought the bread, and he brought the wine, and he had a feast with his disciples, and there was no lamb to be found. Because he was showing them that he was the lamb. And when when he had that last supper, what he was symbolically showing them was, you know this story about God's people in Egypt? It's about all of God's people. And all of God's people need to be saved. And I am the lamb by which they can be saved. What the story of the Passover points us to is that to be saved, like we need a true lamb without blemish. And that God provided that lamb in his own son, Jesus. Because... um, Jesus lived the life that we could never live, and he lived it perfectly, and he dies, he goes on to die as the perfect substitute in our place, the true firstborn of God. Instead of demanding our firstborn, God says, I will give my firstborn. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what we should be all about in RUF, is God, the true God, the one who is just and holy and can demand anything from you, substituting himself so that his people can be with him forever. Religious people are people that try to save themselves. What this is saying is that Christians are people that know that they could never save themselves and can only say, I need a substitute. What this is saying is that God freely offers that substitute to those who need it.
the more that this story is central to your existence, the more that life for you will be the way it was supposed to be. Uh, the more this story is central to your existence, the more you'll be able to be patient with people and love people. Uh, the more this story is central to your existence, the less you'll want to friend zone God into like one corner of your life. And instead what you will want is to say, God, direct me in every way of my life. I only have one area of my life and it's you and everything else flows out of that. Um, the more this story is central to your life, the more you'll be able to say, well, he is central to my life. And I'll live for him no matter where he takes me. Uh, that's what God's hammering home to his people here. Uh, let's pray that God would hammer it home in our lives too. Uh, Heavenly Father, you know what we're like and you know our tendency to cast you aside and instead trust in other things to save us and uh, to rely on ourselves to get by rather than ever wanting to rely on you. We pray that uh, you would make the story of the Lamb central to our lives, and central in our hearts, and that we would be changed because of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.